Well, good morning again, everyone. Thank you again for welcoming us into your home and joining together as the people of God to worship our Lord Jesus, to spend some time in his word. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 19. If you're new with us, we try to read right from the Bible. We believe the Bible is God's word, and we've been doing a brief series called Psalms for such a time as this, and we're talking about how the Psalms relate to our current situations, including the pandemic and the pandemonium going on right now in our nation. I do want to begin by uh, explaining last Sunday. I felt very embarrassed uh, that I did not uh, make more reference to what had happened to George Floyd in Minnesota. Um, We record our sermons on Wednesday and Thursday, And while I was aware of what happened, the gravity had not sunk in personally and the national outcry um, seemed to multiply soon after that. So by the time Sunday arrived, I felt embarrassed that we um, had said so little about it. And thank God uh, and appreciate Pastor John's prayer this morning, as well as the fact that the sermon on unity last week was not primarily spurred by what was going on in our nation, but rather I felt led because of the way that people were responding to the pandemic and the necessity of God's people being an example. Be that as may, this morning we're going to look at Psalm 19, and we're going to discover that in the midst of this pandemic and now national pandemonium, people are asking a question, where is God? Where is he? Why is he allowing all this to happen? And this isn't a new question, particularly when people on this planet face suffering. (sighs) But what I want to talk about this morning is the fact that while God doesn't give us all the answers, Scripture does answer some of them. It does give us the answer to where is God and what's he doing. And I'd like us to look this morning in Psalm 19 Because I think what we're going to find from Psalm 19 is that God is is very busy. He's very active in this planet. And we're going to see that there's two things that he's doing primarily. Number one, he's revealing himself through his creation. And then he is restoring sinners through his message of salvation through the scripture. So there are a number of Psalms that talk about the Bible. If you're familiar with the Psalms, I really encourage you to Read Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. There's that wonderful uh, Psalm 119, that acrostic based on the letters of the alphabet, just a beautiful psalm with some precious verses like, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, or thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. But I want you to look with me this morning in verses one through six as we answer the question, where is God? And we need to remind ourselves as we prance about on this planet that God is busy revealing himself to people through creation. There are a lot of people now that that actually say, hey, I don't believe there's a God. I can't see him. And one of the things that I want us to think about there is that Certain things can be factually demonstrated without actually seeing it happen. For example, 
when Goldilocks had entered the house of the three bears, they didn't actually see her at first, but there was enough evidence to draw a conclusion. Somebody's been eating my porridge. In the same way, often in criminal investigations, while we may not actually see the crime take place, there are enough fingerprints and clues where we can come to a firm conclusion as to what happened. And so as you think about this universe in which we live, I want to suggest that it's actually designed by God, not just for our benefit. The the creation is for our benefit. The Bible says the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. But it's also designed to reveal God. And so in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, I want you to follow along as we read together, and then we're going to talk about three of the implications of this. Join with me as we look at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And then as if to indicate that it's not literal words, he says there is no speech nor are there words, Their voice is not heard, but yet their line or their message has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them, the heavens, he has placed a tent for the sun. So he's using an imagery that the sun is is, is up in heaven like in a tent. It's as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The first thing I want you to note here about how God is revealing himself through creation is that this revelation of God is universal. There's no place on this planet where people can say, hey, I didn't know there was a God. There there were no clues. Look at some of the phrases that are used. First of all, it says in verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth. It then goes on in verse 4 to say their utterance to the end of the world. And then finally, at the end of verse 6, it says, nothing is hidden from its heat. So even if a person was deaf, they could still see God's creation. Even if they were blind, they could feel the warmth of the sun. There is no place on this planet that God has not revealed his existence. It's interesting that the psalmist uses so many verbs of communication. The heavens tell, they declare, they pour forth speech, their utterances. It's really something interesting to think about. If you actually hear clouds talking to you, you probably need to get a checkup. But on the other hand, it's, it's a great way to think each morning as I rise from my bed and I look out at the sky that God is sending an ongoing message. I exist. I'm powerful. 
I'm your creator. You were created by me. You answer to me. And so first of all, the revelation is universal. Secondly, I want you to note that the revelation is continual. God never has a closed sign on his revelation. It's, it's going on all the time. Notice, day to day pours forth speech. So during the sunlight hours, we can look up and see the clouds. We can see the mountains. But even as the sun drops, night to night, it reveals knowledge. The moon begins its shift. The stars come out of the locker room and start their, their sequence. And finally, we notice that this revelation of God is multidimensional. In other words, there's all kinds of ways that you can see the existence of God in creation. There's not one singular thing. So one could point to the sun, which is wonderful, as an evidence of a powerful creator. I mean, it is worth contemplating that this giant flaming ball is located 93 million miles from Earth. It's precisely close enough to warm us and provide us the light for our vegetation, but not so close to fry us, not so far to freeze us. And those wags who don't believe the Bible would point out here that, look, David thought the sun moves. He said the sun comes out of its chamber and it runs across the sky. And of course, we have to realize that this is what we call the language of appearance. We all know that the sun doesn't rise, but we still use that term. When the newsman comes on and says, sunrise is at 5 a.m., I don't call up Channel 6 and say, you're a liar, the sun doesn't rise. So think about how God has designed his creation for the enjoyment of Christians. We sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise. The songwriter said, when through the woods and forest glades I wander, and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees, when I look down from lofty grandeur, and hear the birds and feel the gentle breeze, then sings my soul, my Savior God today. We praise God, but it's intentional, it's purposeful. God has designed this creation for us to look around. Isaiah said, the whole earth is full of his glory. And I want us to consider that there are very serious implications to this. God, when he, when he spoke the, 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 the planets into space and he placed us in this sphere of creation, number one, we have to recognize that this evidence of his creation is purposeful. It's purposeful. It is designed to draw men to God. There was a time on planet Earth when people could see God. Adam saw God face to face. The only thing that keeps us from being able to see God is human sin. Sin caused Adam to be banished from the presence of God. The Bible says our sins separate us from God. So he's very real, he's very present, we just can't see him. And so in his mercy, he designed creation so that its purpose would draw men to seek him. I want us to look at this passage in Acts 17. As the Apostle Paul was sharing the gospel of Christ with a group of pagans, he said in verse 24, God who made the world and all things in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. 
He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. But notice that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. He's not far from each of us. That's really profound to think about. As people wander around on this planet, God is continually speaking to them through creation, saying, I exist. I am your creator. You are to worship and serve me. You will answer to me one day. His desire is for people to come to know him. God is not fond of Marco Polo. He doesn't like to play games and say, I'm over here, I'm over here. And he uses creation to draw people. Evidence of his existence is very purposeful. Secondly, denial of his existence is inexcusable for a person to say, hey man, I haven't seen God. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse for a person to deny the existence of God because they can't see him, according to scripture, is inexcusable. To think that these, this amazing expanse of the universe was designed to reveal God, how distorted it is to deny his existence. It reminds me of a, of a story when we were having this great competition to see who could put the first man in space, and the Russians, which at the time, Russia was a very atheistic country. One of their astronauts, uh, as, as they beat us to get a man into space, when he came back, he said, I looked out at the heavens and I didn't see God. He saw evidence of God, but he, but he distorted it. He denied it. I love what W.A. Criswell said. He said, next time he's up there, tell him to open the window and he'll see God right away. The third thing to note is that the to, to distort his existence is even more horrible. To deny his existence is inexcusable, but to distort his existence is, is horrible. The Bible calls this exchanging the truth of God for a lie. So in other words, many people, because of the evidence of God, all the way from the cumulus clouds to the chromosomes of our DNA go, there must be some intelligent designer. They begin this pathway of speculation. And while we might think it's harmless for them to propose, well, maybe God's a she, maybe there's a bunch of gods, maybe God is just a force. In the scriptures, this is horrible. Romans chapter one goes on to read in verse 21. Even though men knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't thank him, but instead they were futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And if we move down to verse 25, it says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The great exchange. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is worth pondering. People might say, why are there so many religions out there? Some have proposed that religions are just an opiate to make people 
cope with life's difficulties. But you know, there's another possibility, and that is deeply rooted within man is the clear sense that there must be a God out there. But because of human sin, the Bible teaches that our minds have become distorted and we've intentionally created our own religions in our image. And so all religions are not equally acceptable. In fact, mutually contradictory religions cannot both be true. You can't say there's one God alone or there's many gods and both be true. So as we think about what it means to live on this earth, we have to understand that the Bible makes it very clear there's one God, he has made his existence clear through creation, and that to deny it or to distort it is very, very grave. In fact, the fourth point I wanna make about this Psalm 19, as the psalmist says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, is that rebellion against this evidence is damnable. It's not neutral, it's damnable. And I choose that word very carefully. You see, the Bible teaches that men know there's a God and they intentionally press the delete button. They don't wanna think about God, they don't want God on their screensaver. The most passionate atheists are frothing with anger and rebellion, but deep in their souls they know that there's a God, they know that there's a creator. They know that they're in rebellion. Look at Romans 1, verse 28. It says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And look carefully at verse 32. It, it, it makes it so clear. They know the ordinance of God. They know that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. There's gonna come a day when the creator in the person of Jesus Christ will return to earth and everyone will answer to him. And so we learn from the Psalm 19 that God has revealed himself through creation, but man's response has been distortion, denial, and rebellion. So where does that leave us? Well, let's go back to Psalm 19. There's this very abrupt transition. Beginning in verse seven of Psalm 19, the psalmist makes an about face, a 180. He now turns to the Bible, to the truth of the scriptures. He uses numerous terms to describe the word of God. And I think his premise is this is while God is revealing his existence through creation, he's restoring and rescuing people through scripture. Let me say that again. God reveals his existence through creation, but no one goes to heaven because they look up and they say, God, I, I believe you exist. It's rather through the scriptures, the special revelation of God, this precious book, that God rescues and saves and brings men to the knowledge of salvation. That's why it's imperative that the message of the gospel goes out into all the earth. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Look with me in verse seven. The psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here I want to call your attention to the fact that the psalmist is showing us that it is the Bible, the Word of God, as the instrument in which God rescues people. This is what we call conversion. This is a good word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. People are born with a broken soul, and it is through the revelation of God's truth in the Bible that people are converted. Pastor John, as he prayed earlier, he made note of the fact that men profess to be wise, and we can go all over this planet to the highest educational institutions. We can go to MIT and Harvard and all the think tanks, and we can find very brilliant men who are proposing all kinds of ideas about where we came from and where we're going and why we're here. But the Bible calls them foolish. God intended that no one would come to know him simply through their intelligence. The book of 1 Corinthians said it, in the wisdom of God, it pleased God that no one would come to know him through their own intelligence, but rather through the foolishness of preaching, he would save those who believe. And so this book is so precious because it's the word that opens people's eyes. Look at verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Please don't be offended by this. But if you don't believe the Bible to be the word of God, the Bible considers you foolish and simple and in need of repentance and a change of mind. And I beg you to consider that. I beg you to consider that this book could change your life. But not only is he rescuing people through conversion, he then is restoring his people through a process we call sanctification. And there's an absolute connection between sanctification and the Bible. No one can be changed into the image of Christ. Nobody can be transformed by God apart from the Bible. As I said, the Bible calls this sanctification. It's this ongoing process. Once we are forgiven of our sin, as the law of the Lord opens our eyes and we learn of the gospel, once we're forgiven, we then begin to be changed into the image of Christ. It's this ongoing process. Of, of laying aside our old self, seeing our new identity in Christ, trusting in the Holy Spirit to be transformed. God doesn't just save us and then leave us. He saves us to sanctify us, but he converts us through the word. The songwriter said, by God's word at last, my sin I learned, then I trembled at the law I'd spurned, till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you've already turned to the Lord. Now let's see how God's using his word to change us into the image of Christ. Even Jesus prayed this in John 17. He said, Father, sanctify your people through your truth. Your word is truth. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You know, if you've never experienced that, just ask God, say, Lord, would you use your word to lift me up? Jeremiah said it this way, thy words were found and I did eat them and thy word became the joy and rejoicing 
of my heart. Ask the Lord to use his word to bring you joy. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So many times we, we, we can't see things clearly and then suddenly a word from the Lord as we're reading scripture brings clarity and we go, ah, that's what I needed to hear. Here in verse 9, he uses the phrase, the fear of the Lord. This is the only term that can't conclusively be stated that it's, that it's referring to the Bible, but, but I'm going to suggest that in this context, the fear of the Lord is synonymous with the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord is what produces a respect for the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. To disbelieve or to disobey anything that the Bible says is to fight against truth and rebel against God. And as you and I begin to understand how precious the Bible is and how helpful it is to show me how to think, to, to, to guide me in my life, I then begin to develop a desire for it. My values change. Look at verse 10. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. When my son Jordan was in kindergarten, he was in a little Christian school in Irving, Texas, and each of the children had to make a, a, a little cardboard um, poster. And so Jordan and I made a little poster. On the one side, there was a pot of gold, and on the other side, there was a picture of a Bible. And I wonder if we offered most young people today a pot of gold with the condition they would never be able to read one word of scripture. How many people would say, I'll take that. But the Bible says scripture is more desirable than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I heard a pastor once tell a story that when his children were little, he literally put a tiny bit of honey on his leather Bible and he would touch that honey and put it to their lips to remind them of the sweet and preciousness of the word of God. And if that's not your experience, if you say, you know, I, I don't care for the Bible, ask God to change your heart. The Holy Spirit will give you an acquired taste for scripture. And sometimes when we're not hungry for scripture, it's because there's something in the way. First Peter chapter two says, laying aside all malice and all that remains of wickedness like newborn babes long for the milk of the word that you may grow. In fact, someone once said it like this, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. The Bible's so precious and valuable. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. So as I'm reading the Bible, I'm warned, I'm able to see that I'm headed in the wrong direction. This reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says, all scripture is profitable for reproof and correction. I'm so thankful that God uses his word and says, hey Tom, I'm warning you, you're starting to have pride. Hey Tom, I'm warning you, you're starting to show signs of laziness. Hey Tom, I'm warning you, 
this isn't the, the, the value system that you should have. And so what a blessing to have a book that points out, hey, you're allowing your heart to go in the wrong direction. But here the word of God will pierce to the dividing asunder of my soul and spirit. It'll expose the thoughts and intents of my heart. And it'll keep me from making terrible mistakes. Look at verse 11. In addition, in keeping them, there is great reward. God's given us this book and he says, as, as you obey me, I will bless you. Obedience to God brings extraordinary blessings. James chapter one says it this way. To those who hear the perfect law, the law of liberty and do it, this man will be blessed. The psalmist said, blessed is the man who meditates in the word. Whatever he does will prosper. He'll be fruitful. And so there's, there's blessings for obeying God. But there's one last thing I want us to think about as we go through this psalm. Yeah, it is true that God is revealing himself through creation. And yes, it's also true that he's rescuing and restoring people through scripture. But in verses 12 through 14, we find that the psalmist now stops for a closing reflection. What should be our response? How should I respond to the fact that God, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of national pandemonium, is sitting on his throne, drawing people to himself, longing for people to be saved, sanctifying his saints to the word. The third point I want to make in verses 12 through 14 is that pursuing holiness should be our adventure. Pursuing holiness should be our adventure. Now, I chose the word adventure very purposefully. The word adventure is defined as an unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. Unusual, exciting, typically hazardous. Folks, the songwriter was absolutely spot on when he said this, through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. The songwriter was completely on cue when he wrote, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. None of us have arrived yet. We're Christians. We live in a fallen world. We have three enemies. Two of them are external, the world and the devil. One of them's internal. It's my own flesh. It wants to open the gate and let the world and the devil in. So that more than anything, I have to pursue holiness as an adventure and understand that it's dangerous and hazardous. Many a confessing Christian has fallen away from the Lord. The Bible says, be careful lest there be in any one of us an evil and unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. For those of you that aren't connecting with other Christians, that aren't reading the word, that aren't praying, you're in danger. The psalmist said, or the author of Hebrews said, how shall we escape if we drift away and neglect so great a salvation? So let me encourage you to recognize that while we're in this sort of timeout from the pandemic, don't take a timeout from your pursuit of holiness. And there's a couple things I want us to see as we close. Number one, in verse 12, we learn that the pursuit of holiness requires examination 
and confession. If I'm going to grow in the Lord and follow Jesus and be a disciple, I have to regularly be in his word and then respond with examination and confession. Notice the the psalmist in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Sometimes people have asked me the question, hey, pastor, does God hold us accountable for sins if we don't know whether we did it? And I think that this verse provides a little bit of light to that. Probably the best response would simply to say, Lord, if I've sinned unaware, would you please forgive me? Remember, the precious blood of Jesus pardons all of our sin. But God has called us as Christians to regularly examine ourselves. And when we become aware of our sin, we are to confess it very specifically. So I don't want to, I don't want, uh, to encourage you to simply say, oh Lord, forgive me for my sins, because to confess your sin is to agree with God and to admit it. So be specific. Lord, forgive me for my sin. And, and picture Jesus saying, what sin? And you tell him. I thought this, I did this, I didn't do this. And so regularly as we think about God's word and we're growing in Christ, we examine our hearts, we confess our sins. But secondly, the pursuit of holiness requires prayer and determination. It wasn't the sins that David didn't know about that he was afraid of, it's the sins that he did know about. Look what he says in verse 13. Look at this prayer, what a great prayer. Also, Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. These are those sins that we know are wrong. We absolutely have no doubt that this is not what God wants us to do. But, but like stubborn fools, we, we cover our ears and we rush headlong into a sin. The Bible calls these high-handed sins deliberate and direct rebellion against God, and we all have the capacity to do that. And so what a wonderful truth that I pray ahead of time, Lord, keep me back from these presumptuous sins. Lord, I'm praying that you will prevent me from wandering into temptation. Please, Lord, through the gospel, look at verse 13, let them not rule over me. And folks, the good news of the gospel is they don't have to. Romans 6 is a wonderful reminder that as Christians under the new covenant, because I've been crucified with Christ, my body, which was dominated by sin, the power has been broken, and I no longer have to be a slave of sin. But it doesn't mean I'm careless. It means I'm cautious. It doesn't mean I'm prayerless. It means I plead with God. Lord, help me to change. Help me not to continue in these patterns of disobedience. And then the psalmist says, if you do this for me, Lord, then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. What a wonderful prayer. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. But notice that his prayer also involved a very deliberate determination. As a Christian, I need to think about what I think about, and I need to monitor what comes out of my mouth. 
Notice David's conclusion as he praises God and meditates on God declaring himself through creation, God converting him through scripture, God restoring him through his word, but ultimately, David was fully committed to the holiness adventure. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Who's going to change David's thoughts? Who's going to change David's words? Is it God or is it David? And the answer is, it's both. David prayed, God, please restrain the words of my mouth. Help me, enable me to think things that are pleasing to you. But then I assure you that he was carefully determined that he would work through this. As he went through the day, he would think about his thoughts, and he would carefully guard his words. And that's a process. It's a journey. It's an adventure. It's what the Bible calls the pursuit of holiness. And I'd like to close by encouraging all of us to remember that this this beautiful balance of, of depending on Jesus and determining to be like him is something we need to think about often. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. Just as you've always obeyed God, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, determine to, to, to make every effort to be in the word, be in prayer, live for Christ, witness for Christ, serve the Lord Jesus. But then also recognize that it's not just your discipline, but it's complete dependence on God. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Paul said it this way, for it is God who is at work in you to will and work for your good pleasure, for his good pleasure. May God bless you. I think this morning if I were to close and suggest that you saw God on the street one day and said to him, God, what have you been up to? He would say this, I'm constantly revealing myself through creation. I'm constantly drawing my elect to myself for conversion. I'm continually transforming my people for my glory. Are you with him or against him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. May Psalm 19 ring true in our souls. Thank you, Lord, that we can look around and see evidence of you wherever we go in creation. But I so thank you, God, for giving us this holy book and the Holy Spirit that guides us to salvation, that will keep us in our sanctification until the day we see Christ. Lord, all of us are at a different place in our journey, but may your word accomplish that which you set it forth to do. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.